Hello, welcome to Farmgate. I'm Finn Locustain, the Chief Executive of Farmwell and founder of the Food and Global Security Network. In this programme, we're talking trees. Demand for new woodland is growing for everything from timber to carbon sequestration. But forests take up space and competition for land is increasing. How do we balance the demands of food production, nature, housing and infrastructure with the need for new woodland and forest products? And is it time at last for a joined up land use strategy for the UK and for other places around the world. I'm joined by Andrew Heald, a consultant specialising in sustainable forests and plantations, and by Martin Lines, the chair of the Nature Friendly Farming Network. Welcome both. Hello. Hi, good morning, Phil. Good morning, Martin. Andy, let's start with a simple question. What do we need wood and woodland for? Well, I think we need trees, more trees and more woodland in our landscapes for lots of different reasons, whether that's for, for biodiversity or habitat connection, for carbon sequestration, to provide shelter for livestock on farms or protect rivers from runoff or to shade those rivers. There's an interesting initiative in, in Scotland called Riverwoods looking at shading of rivers and how important that is for, for salmonid stocks. More woodlands and more trees can have an impact around soil erosion and they're, they're nice places to walk, to run or just to sit and contemplate life in. And of course, I'm really interested in those woodlands and forests from a timber and a fibre perspective and how we use that timber and fibre to decarbonise a lot of what we do in, in our economies. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, the countryside, whether it's farmland or whether it's woodland, there is this competition, you know, for, for different sort of functions, whether, it, you know, there's the economic functions, but also the well-being functions. And at this point in time, particularly after COVID over the last couple of years, that well-being, that sort of amenity element is is critically important. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think anyone anyone managing countryside where there's, there's easy access has seen a huge boom in the number of people turning up and how, how we manage that impact. And different forest management types or different farmers are able to cope with that differently. Obviously, there's been a huge increase in negative impacts of people accessing the countryside. But there is that demand. And I think a lot of people have rediscovered the kind of countryside on their doorstep. And I don't think that demand is going to go away. And I think we need to think carefully about how we manage that land and how we work with landowners and land managers to kind of increase the positive aspects of that and reduce the negative aspects. I think woodland does soak up a lot of access pressure managed in the right way. And I think we're going to come on to quite a few of those issues because there was lots in, in what you just said there. And we'll, we'll start to unpack that as we go forward. But before we do, I just want to ask you about different forestry mixes because, of course, different forestry mixes serve different outcomes. And I wonder if you could talk us through some of the different types of woodland that we might encounter and what the trees that grow in them uh, might be used for. I think we'll need a longer, podca longer podcast for that. Um, and I think we also spend a lot of time kind of lab labelling um, woodland types and woodland management practices and Sometimes those labels aren't helpful, but I tend to think of different outcomes of woodland management and kind of work backwards from there. So if you're managing, if you're interested in uh, woodlands for biodiversity and particularly managing biodiversity that likes open space and edges within woodland, then you could have a coppice woodland, a coppice broadleaf woodland. If perhaps your objective is growing um, saw logs for UK construction, then you can perhaps be growing more conifers rather than broadleaves and thinning them over a longer rotation so that well-thinned, managed conifer woodland. And I think sometimes we tend to reduce things often to, we oversimplify kind of woodland management. So we can and do and should be managing uh, broadleaf native woodland for timber, and we should be managing, and we can and should also be managing pine, pine plantations for biodiversity. And then there's this huge everything in between. The other complication or other in added level of interest is that sometimes the what you're managing a woodland for or a part of a woodland for 
and the outcomes will change over time. So say in a conifer forest, you might have a restock site within that conifer forest that might be really good for nightjar and black grouse because the area is clear, it's got shelter and it's, that's good for that habitat. But then the crops close and it becomes less good for those species. And that's just like, in a, and that cycle starts in another part of the forest. That's just like a, a broadleaf coppice woodland where a broadleaf coppice woodland is good, really good for woodland flora and biodiversity and butterflies in that when you have that, and it's just been felled and it's open. And then that woodland changes over time. I think similarly, a lot of the 1960s and 70s plantation forestry we had were planted with a particular outcome or aspect pulp and paper and um, obviously the sort of famously growing pit props for the coal industry they weren't thought about as uh, we weren't thinking about mass timber or bioplastics or the wider bioeconomy so I think that's that challenge of everything from native wild woodland to intensively managed plantations but those intensively managed plantations could be a wide range of species so that's what makes woodland and forestry just like farming and agriculture it covers such a wide range of habitat of types of habitat types and uh, outcomes. And just to clear something up before we get any further, because you've told me off in the past when I've misrepresented Sitka spruce, for example, and you said, don't talk about Sitka spruce when you're talking about carbon sequestration, because that's not what it's for. Carbon sequestration, you know, it's it's through broadleaf uh, woodland instead. Is, is that right? Let's just be clear before we get any further. Sitka spruce sequesters carbon. That's, you know, that's the sequestering carbon is what turns CO2 in the atmosphere into into wood, into timber, into stuff. And generally, if people are planting conifers, then they're planting a crop and it's that crop to be harvested. So that, that crop is sequestered carbon, it's stored carbon, but it, you're planting it for a, different, for a range of different purposes. So if people are planting spruce, it's because they want to grow a crop of spruce, which might be used for a range of products from timber and construction to wooden pallets to fencing to some paper products and everything in between. So, of course, whichever trees you're planting, they are sequestering carbon from the atmosphere, as you, as you said then. But if we're looking at planting trees and growing woodland to locking carbon in perpetuity, then that is a woodland that's unlikely to be cropped. And actually, it's a woodland that we would expect to be staying there. Again, it depends on, on your objectives as if you just want to lock up carbon in situ, then yes, it will probably be um, an unmanaged or lightly managed broadleaf woodland that's going to sit there for a long time. Or you, know, you could be growing large sequoias and leaving them there for a thousand years. But arguably, what we need to be doing is reducing emissions. That's the big thing we need to do is reduce emissions. And a lot of emissions in the UK come from the construction sector. And if we were growing more timber and getting more timber into construction, then we're sequestering carbon in that timber. And then we get the kind of double benefit of if we're using less concrete and steel and more timbering construction, then there's less emissions from that concrete and steel. So just looking at in situ carbon stored in the woodland is great. That's kind of only one aspect. That's been a fantastic sort of introduction to uh, to, to, to the world of forestry and, and timber. Um, Martin, let's just come over to you. What role does woodland play for you on your farm? So currently not a, not a massive amount. I'm in Cambridgeshire and we haven't got a huge amount of woodlands on our farm. We have got a bit of uh, medi- oh, what's left of a medieval woodland and there's a little bit of coppicing area in there. So we have, you know, we can coppice a little bit of hazel. And in the past, some of that woodland was removed to, to gain an area-based payment or to a grassland payment to meet a, uh, the EU payment structure in, in CAP. We have other trees dotted along the landscape that provide us firewood and fuel for the winter. But that, that is changing. And where and how we put trees 
um, will change as well. Do you have a plan in place? Are you already starting to plant new trees and, and take up new space and think about ways that they integrate within your uh, within your system? Very much so. I count the farm as a, an asset manager. I manage some landscape and I'm trying to get the best I can from it. We have some fairly productive soils and we can get some good yields of traditional crops so that I can get a good return there. But I've also got parts of the farm that you know lay wet or are not the best soils. So we're already now identifying a number of areas to restock woodland, plant new woodland, make some shelter bales as our wind changes. And you know, I've got a lot of development that's going to come around us. How can I use trees as an actual defence? But it's not just trees, it's hedges and other bits as well. And we can actually just think about as our climate changes, we're seeing more wind. So can I put hedges and trees in place just to slow the flow of air down, which warms my ground up, makes my crops grow better. I just think this integrated process of how we fit trees into our landscape will be so important in the future. And we must be more open-minded in the way we're thinking about it. This We've been so siloed in our previous thinking of what is farming, what is food, what is timber, what is the other goods we produce. It's interesting because you've already started talking uh, there about the way in which it's not just land that you've kind of set aside for conservation and nature and then other land that you're using for farming, but there, there is this integration. And I wonder, you know, just from a... Uh, I mean, you, you mentioned there about airflows and temperatures and, and wind breaks but are there other ways that you're able to integrate new trees and hedges with food production that will help to improve your productivity and profitability huge opportunities and the more open-minded we are we can put them in in the middle of fields we can make avenues in agroforestry and silver pasture with gps they won't be in the way of my modern machine you know large-scale machinery then we can we add fruit and nuts in have i got a local market What's timber resource I may need in the future? On our own farm, what can I sell? If we put the right species in hedgerows and the flowering species, there's increased pollinator and predatory insect benefit. I'm seeing on our own farm, we haven't needed to use insecticides for nine years because we deliver habitat. And that part of that is within my hedgerow. So I have a resource of predators and beneficials that can come and help my crop. But we just need to understand and be, I need to learn the the benefits of all the different species habitat and things I can put on the farm and how I can make them all coexist. And what I'm finding, it reduces my overheads, it reduces my costs and gives me a more stable output that is particularly as our climate changes, that makes my business more resilient. And by taking those less productive areas out from growing crops, generating income through habitat, through timber in the future and through other things, that makes my business more robust and benefiting in the future. So if I play that back a little bit, then there's a degree to which you, you found over the last you know decades that you've been farming. If farmers simply strip away nature uh, in order to grow a crop, then, then they've stripped out everything that's going to help them. And, and so you end up having to sort of spend money bringing stuff in, using chemicals, using insecticides, because you've taken away the nature that would work for you if it was still there. So by bringing back in trees, by bringing hedgerows back in, by, by working with nature, and rebalancing that, you're bringing in those natural predators, that natural balance that means that it ultimately it saves you quite a lot of money. Yeah, and part of what we're doing as a network, nature means business. Nature gives us free asset and free availability of sunshine, water and soil. And if we can work with it, we are not bringing in that artificial resource to compensate for nature. And much of that resource is a fossil fuel based in fertilisers, in sprays, in, in, in energy, in fuel. 
So why would I want to be buying something when I can, if I balance it well and get the right output, it's free and then I'll get more outputs. And it is really a different way of thinking. And in the past has always been about focus on increasing production of single crops, monoculture bits. And the future is this combined landscape use, understanding what we get and how they all coexist to get better outputs of all the things I can produce. So Andy, I mean, that, that must sound like music to your ears in, in many ways, but, you know, in the last hundred years or so, New Woodland has largely been separated from agriculture. There's been a sort of strategic, um, it, that sounds a little grand, a strategic plan, but it sort of ended up being that trees have been grown specifically for timber products, have been produced in, in monocultures of one kind, and some of them pretty horrendous. And there has been that sort of sparing approach. And a new report from the Soil Association is calling for what they call regenerative forestry, a move away from this more traditional, sparing way of doing things where farming, forestry and conservation are done in different places, and towards a sharing approach, which is the kind of thing that both you and Martin have been talking about, with woodlands providing multiple outcomes. So what does regenerative forestry mean to you, and how can we achieve it going forwards? Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting and it's, it's exciting to hear to hear what Martin was saying there and I think it's it's easy to look back on kind of forestry and agricultural practices of 40 50 60 years ago and think what why why did we do that and um, what were the questions some of the uh, the government policies that were driving the kind of post-war intensification of land use whether that's Fenland arable agriculture or the planting of the flow countries I think it all came from the same place it was really interesting to read that soil association report and that talk about regenerative forestry and to hear Martin talking about regenerative farming and I think it is about taking this as Martin was saying it's about taking a whole systems approach and it's understanding about what aspects of forest management have the biggest positive impacts and what have the negative impacts understanding the trade-offs between the two and sort of working to that and I think I think that the, the report the one of the things I really like about the report is the soil association soil association have a long history of um, auditing forest management in the UK which perhaps not many people know about we have a, a forest management standard in the UK called Aquas UK Woodland Assurance Standard and Soil Association are one of the main certifying bodies for that standard. So that report is based on probably about 20 years of auditing experience and talking to a lot of forest managers across the UK. And the Aquas standard has been around for about 20 years. It's revised every five years by a multi-stakeholder group, which includes representatives from RSPB, Woodland Trust, forestry companies and community woodland groups. So that that report on regenerative forestry is really pulling together a lot of existing really good practice and I think giving kind of policymakers a shove in the right direction. And I think we're all facing in the right direction, but a shove to move faster and quicker. And I think there is is that line about the the future's already here. It's just unevenly distributed. There is some really good stuff. There's lots of really good forest management practice and farm management practices going on. And I think sometimes you just need, everyone needs to be shown and I don't mean that in a in a patronising way, but just go well. You could you could do it like this, and this is this is the benefits, and these are the trade offs. And I think that report is really good for just for just opening everyone's eyes a little bit, saying, look, this is what's already occurring, and this is what we need to be doing a lot more of. And as as Martin said, instead of trying to, if you've got areas that aren't growing good crops, then pumping a lot of energy uh, energy and input into that land probably isn't a hugely good decision from from an environmental point of view or from an economic point of view. You know, within that 
that. You're talking about both nudging and frameworks, and some of those nudges and frameworks come from sort of peer-to-peer information sharing, which I guess is where that report from the Soil Association comes from. So Robin Walter, who who wrote it or was the lead author, um, you know, is an assessor within that scheme that you were talking about. So there's a huge amount of experience and, and, and knowledge there. Martin, you were wanting to come in. Yeah, I just want to pick up a point. You referenced uh, seeing trees and some of the planting as monoculture and not being great. We could also look at farming in the same. We see huge areas of single crops growing on, on, on mass areas and mass areas of single species grasses and rice only delivering for output. So I do think we need to rethink our thinking. And, and what is monoculture? Is it just trees or is it a whole farming system in the way we've farmed before? And how do we look at it to go forward in a more systems regenerative way and don't blame the past, but also learn from it and in a more uh, joined up approach as we move forward and have a rethink on our landscape use and the outputs and how we have a more mixed output in the future. I'm glad you came in and said that because uh, I was thinking when Andy said, you know, we're we're sort of looking back sort of 50, 60 years to some of the bad practice in the past. I I was kind of thinking you're being very generous there, Andy, certainly in terms of agriculture, because as you say, Martin, there is still a lot of monoculture uh, cropping when it comes to agriculture particularly. And, you know, what's exciting on this podcast is we talk to so many people who are sort of doing different, who are starting and, and, and finding, you know, success within that whole system. Systems approach. Andy, let me come back and say something rude to you and uh, uh, offer you a chance to kind of address a couple of these things. Now, something that I've heard people say is that the UK is comparatively small and we don't necessarily have space for a lot more forestry. So the first question is, is that true? What's the rebuttal? Uh, and is there a problem with importing timber from places with more land available for forestry and smaller populations, therefore in need of uh, food production on their doorstep? step. I I hear that quite a lot. My standard rebuttal is to ask that question of people who have horses or play golf or drink whiskey. I think I read somewhere recently that a medium-sized dog has an environmental footprint of about between half and three quarters of a hectare, something like that. And uh, there are 12 and a half million dogs in the UK. So if if we're worried about strategic land use, then dogs are perhaps a big issue as well. But no, I I hear that quite a lot. And um, what we're talking about is land use change. And the UK has always imported huge amounts of timber and has done for for centuries as a a quote from, it's a misquote, but it's kind of Samuel Johnson, um, when he was on his tour of Scotland, said to see a tree in Scotland is like seeing a horse in Venice. I paraphrase, but it's a kind of, it's a line like that. So it's not a new thing that we've been, you know, the um, start of the 1900s, First World War, we I think we were down to about three percent woodland cover. And what so what, it, what were we at the greatest? Uh, you know, because uh, I mean, I think we're, we're, is it something like thirteen percent that we're at now? And and I can't remember exactly what the report said, but did it say that we're importing eighty percent of the timber that we use? We import about eighty percent of forest products in general, and we're importing last year. We were importing, it's gone up in terms of timber. In timber imports are now at about a million cubic metres of, of sawn timber and board. So that's, it's not paper, it's not biofuel, it's not anything else. It's just sawn, nearly all softwood timber, and then chipboard, fiberboard, MDF, OSB. So there's about a million cubic metres a month, every month coming in. Where we're importing from is um, Scandinavia, Baltics, and Germany. And if we're looking back about, um, there's various predictions that global demand for forest products is going to double by about 2050, which is the way I say that's that's slightly less. Where it's back, the rotation was of a crop of sick spruce on better land somewhere. So, and why, uh, why would that be? Is that primarily from because because it's replacing other products within construction, or, or why? 
timber and fiber and forest products are globally traded commodities. And so, yes, there's more timber going into construction. But then globally, as, as countries develop, as economies emerge, they tend to use more timber and fiber and paper products, whether that's tissue. We use huge amounts of tissue. Uh, and as countries develop, they tend to use more tissue products and paper products. And I, I have some Amazon parcels delivered yesterday, and they're all, all packaged in forest products. In the UK, the interest in kind of more timbering into construction is growing. And a lot of industries, a lot of companies are looking at basically the carbon impacts in their supply chains, what, what people talk about scope three and scope four emissions in their supply chains, and looking at embodied carbon in construction. So that's the what you build your building out of, your choices of materials. Material have a huge impact on the embodied carbon. And from a UK perspective, there's a huge drive in new house building and that focus on embodied carbon and then the skills shortage in this construction sector, all of that is driving people towards more timber in construction. So we can grow that timber in the UK or we can import it. And I think it's the same way in agriculture when we're looking at shortening of supply chains and sort of they call sticky money, you know, you, you add value on the farm or add value near the forest. The same things I think is happening in happening in construction and in timber growing. Kind of curious, you know, if we went back 400 years or so, when I've been around the Scottish Highlands, I think they're trying to reforest the bottom third or so of, uh, of the landscape there because until relatively recently that was forested, but then an awful lot of it was, was cut down for shipbuilding and, and for other things. Do we have a sense of what proportion of the UK was, you know, properly forested at, at one point rather than being, you know, kind of shrub and, and cigardo type um, landscapes? No, I haven't got a proper idea is the, is the honest answer to that. And I think there's a, you can speak to a lot of different people and you get a lot of different answers of this. I think we often think of forests as kind of what we call high forest of kind of I don't know, G- German black forest of these, of these mature big trees. And I think probably we had some of that. And I think we probably had a lot of open landscape and probably a lot of dynamic landscape that, that moved from being forest to scrub to went on fire and back again and into glacial periods when we had a whole range of different tree species here. My favorite kind of little thing is if you have a Whitby jet, you know, the black mineral you get off Whitby, that's that's monkey puzzle, Araucaria. So that's, yeah, that's my, yeah, do you want native species? Well, there you go. There's evidence that monkey puzzle is a native UK species. It's just you, you pick your point in time. And I think the challenge for us is looking forwards, we know we've got climate change coming. We know we've got 1.5, 2, 3, 4 degrees of warming. And it's how we, you know, how, how do we farm? How do we forest? How do we live in a, in a rapidly changing, rapidly warming climate? I remember going to the, I went on a, an exchange trip to the US about 20 years ago and someone asked, I was in Pennsylvania and they kind of said, so what are your, and they, they had a whole suite of pest and disease problems. And I was kind of going, oh, gray squirrels are a bit of a problem, you know, and uh, Dutch elm disease. And whereas Calara, ash dieback, oak processionary moth, Phytophthora remorum in Larch, we've got another Phytophthora that looks, looks like it's impacting Douglas fir. And these, these changes and then environmental stresses that are coming through. And if we look at forestry in Central Europe, the issues around drought and the impact drought has had on beech forests and spruce forests. And then that drought has then driven um, increased levels of Ips typographus, which is spruce bark beetle that's come in behind the drought. Trees are pretty resilient, but it's often, often they get hit by two or three different things. We seem to be getting longer, hotter, drier summers, and then we're getting milder winters. So we don't get, often insect pests aren't getting killed off over the winter. So they're staying at higher levels than they have been in the past. And are there solutions like Martin was talking about before, you know, if we, you build up nature on your farm, then you bring in the predators that, um, that then eat 
some of the nuisance insects that exist and, and would otherwise create problems for the crops. Is there a similar solution, do you think, for trees? Because, you know, when we think about ash dieback, I mean, it's a, a devastating uh, impact on the landscape, you know, quite apart from anything else. Are there things that we can learn from other places around the world that mean that we can bring in predators um, just naturally that will help to restore that natural balance? Or is that something that we're still just really not sure about? It's the Australian example of cane toads, which is always the one about moving predators around to solve problems and creating bigger problems. I suppose the... I wasn't, just to be clear, I wasn't talking about bringing in predators, but yeah. but changing the natural environment so that so that natural predators um, are more present in a particular landscape. No, absolutely. And I think that there's increasing, and we're just, we're battening down for another storm that's kind of kind of back to come rolling through in Scotland. And that, that understanding of resilience and that you know climate change isn't something that's going to happen in the future it appears to be it appears it is happening now and we're getting more frequent storms and i know a lot of foresters have spent a lot of time decades carefully managing forests continuous cover forest systems or plantation forestry and it's all come down in weeks that realization of that this is the new normal of we're going to get these storms on a more regular basis martin i want to go back to uh, sort of thinking about trends and how things are, are changing and you've been farming with nature throughout your career you instinctively knew that trees were an intrinsic part of maintaining a natural balance between farming and biodiversity and i'm sure that most of the farmers listening to this podcast will probably feel the same way to one extent or another but many other producers particularly in the last three or four generations and we've touched Touched on this already. They've stripped out woodland and hedges to make way for crops, livestock, and vehicles. To what extent do you think that that extractive mindset is genuinely starting to change? Are more and more farmers starting to see the value of integrating woodland within their systems? I, th I think things are changing. It is slow. Uh, certainly on our own farm, my father and grandfather were incentivized to remove much of the woodland. Uh, to put it into grass. We removed almost all the hedgerows, or they did, uh, filled the ditches in. Nature was seen to be a, a, an item that needed to be moved out of the way to increase production. And the drive was just production. I suddenly started to realise that much of what my father and grandfather talked about were no longer here. The species, the just different things are happening. It's about relearning. When I was taught production at a college, university, it was about output, not balance. So we started putting some of the hedgerows back in through grants and different pieces. Much of that was to stop hair courses and fly tippers coming onto the land because if there's a hedge in the way, and I could persuade my, my parents, uh, that was a good thing. It, and he, my father was paid to remove it. And within a few years, we're being paid to put hedgerows back. And it, it's just this different thinking. As a farmer, I've got a whole lot to learn around what I need to do, what I need to put in the right places, what can I get rewarded for? What are the future markets for the stuff I can grow? And I think many farmers are also thinking like that. We've seen, the same as here, tremendous amount of hedgerows and new trees planted. Some are always not in the right place doing the right thing because it just chased the payments to, to do something, not always about the thinking. And I find many farmers, are I probably put them in three camps. You've got that leading group that have always done things and are leading the way. There's a big chunk of farmers and land managers in that middle that try to do the right thing, but they're just then pulled and pushed about, but they, they really care for what they do. They just got to find the right incentives. And there, there are, and there still is a group of farmers that we see, you know, the end of harvest, cut all the hedges back, push everything out of the way. They want to go bigger. They want to, and it's not just in the UK, we see that globally. And how do we tackle that? 
group. And I think by showing examples of how trees and hedges fit into a landscape and help production balance the outputs, look at those future markets, we know steel and concrete will be moving, they will have to, construction will have to move away from those products. And timber is the obvious choice to put in. So how do I plant some timber on my land to have a market in the, you know, marketing opportunity in the future? And it's by showing that demonstration role, as we do through the Nature Friendly Farming Network, of what farmers are already doing, what have been doing in the past, and making it not too big a step for those that haven't done anything. If you only show the far end, there's always that resistance, and there is lots of negative resistance within the industry. The language various organisations use, the putting things in pots, and it's labelling in different systems and blaming a different label, and you, it's not fitting a system that's you know, our organisation believes in or their organisations believe in. But it's we've got to change. We've got to help farmers to change and land managers change and see the new opportunities and what society is asking them to deliver in that mixed, more mixed approach. And also, where is the future financial rewards? Where are my future markets? How do I not only grow for this, my generation, but the future generations that will come onto this landscape? Because trees were planted in the past in a similar mindset, you don't plant them to harvest them now. They're harvested by the next generation or the generation after that. And that's how we've got to start thinking again in that future delivery. I'm interested in that last group that you talked about. And I'm, I'm curious whether that's a generational thing, whether it's it's largely older farmers who've been farming for 30 or 40 years that you'd put in that group, or whether there's a new generation of people coming in that are still actually not particularly interested in what we're talking about here. I think it's multi-generational. I think it's the younger generation have learned from the older generation. They've encompassed themselves and been in, in the same rooms and meetings with the same language. And that's what they've learned. They've learned of their parents. And I know, talking to young farmers, and I have, I have a lot of visitors on the farm, there are still many of those people that it's a production-only output and the more food, more output, nature, why do you need to worry about that? I can bring in a can of product or do other things. But I do see that breaking down. And I do think that smaller minority group is now starting to change. But what we do know is when they do change, they will leap forward because they're quite often market-minded and very good business people. And if they get the bit between their teeth, they will leap forward because they want to do as much as they can because they see a new opportunity. And I'm sure the Nature Friendly Farming Network has been really important in that. And I just wonder if you could remind us how long the Nature Friendly Farming Network has been around and also whether you have seen a change yourself, um, a growing level of traction for the kind of multiple outcome land use that we're talking about. Massive change happening. Uh, and and engagement network. So no, November 17, we brought the first group of farmers together. We, I've been working on it with a few others for about six months looking at this idea. Many farmers who had been surveyed in the previous years across the UK felt they didn't have a voice. We launched at the Oxford Real Farming Conference in January 18. And in that gap, we'd had a Brexit vote and land use was going to change. We're going to have UK policy. And actually, because we're a whole UK farming network with a steering group in each country, we can reflect the differences across in the different countries. But we can also come from it as farmers across the UK are managing the same bit of dirt for the same sort of outputs. So we need to do this cross-border thing. And actually, the growth of the network has been tremendous and uh, opportunities farmers are getting now to come into meetings to put a different perspective across 
um, and challenge some of the old mindset and thinking and, and where the old policy was and where we can get it to. And I think that's a great opportunity to have an alternative farming voice in many meetings. Now, for much of this conversation, we've been worrying that there isn't enough of this good stuff going on. There isn't enough woodland being integrated. But I want to come at this from a slightly different perspective because farmers are increasingly being paid for public goods and services and tree planting is, in one form or another, is fairly easy to monetize, either through selling carbon sequestration and storage or simply through selling land for forestry or, for that matter, development. So how concerned are you that Britain's ability to feed itself might be under mind by a drive for too many forests? Not at all uh, concerned. Actually, when we look at our landscape use and what farmers produce from that land, much isn't food for people. If the concern is feeding the nation and delivering healthy quality food, well, that should be a priority for our best landscape and best soils. Currently, we produce, I think 60% of the grains we produce go to feed animals. Uh, We produce up to one and a half million tonnes of wheat to go into bioethanol several hundred thousand hectares of quality grade one, two land going into maize for anaerobic digestion. So if it's about food production, (laughs) we can actually really shift the dial and and we can put so much more nature, habitats, trees within our landscape. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. We can add lots more trees and add crops in between them. We could add livestock in between them. So we haven't got to be joined up. And has it got to be a sheep or a cow or uh, something like that? Or can it be deer? What is the food output? Could it be fruit and nuts? Um, So I just find the argument around this food security and food production that just completely the wrong narrative we should be talking around. And we should be focused around what is the need from our landscape? What are the market drivers? What do I get rewarded from? But also, how do we keep a working farmed landscape? The outputs may change. We may have less livestock and more trees because that's where the reward is. We may have more greenhouses and food production in warehouses and underground. We can change that, but we need to help the farmers stay farming. And even on a tenanted sector, I think some of the big problems we have with some of the grants for trees, if you're the landlord, and your tenant is coming up for a renegotiation of, of a tenancy, it is quite uh, lucrative for some to actually say, well, we'll remove the tenant, we'll just plant the trees. And actually, we need to get the tenants to understand there is an opportunity for them to have a, have a role in those trees and earn some income managing those trees and being involved in that different landscape use. It's not about one or the other, it's about a joined up approach. Again, coming back to multifunction land use and phrases that sort of leap out for me while you were talking there, you know, that we need land appropriate food, not food that's just grown on on whatever land because a farmer thinks that there's a market for it there. It's what food is appropriate for that and and, and increasingly moving to food for humans rather than uh, feed for livestock. Thanks very much for that, Martin. Andy, thinking not just of Britain, but around the world, I wonder if you have examples where forestry and food production have been really well integrated. I've got a new phrase now, which is timber appropriate land. And I think sometimes it's, as Mike was saying, it's looking at, we tend to have quite a limited timber crop in terms of focusing on a few species because of the land that we're growing it on. And I think if we're looking at a more holistic approach and more wider landscapes, we'd be growing more timber on a wider variety of land than we'd be growing a wider variety of crops. If you look at, I was going to say, look at other parts of Europe that have higher levels of tree and woodland cover, and you often see farms having timber and forests integrated in, into that farm landscape. So France and Germany both have a 
about 30% uh, tree cover, woodland cover, and the, compared to the UK's about 12, as you said before, Finlo, about 12, 13%. So I think it's 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 kind of looking at outcomes and uh, versus symptoms, if you like. If we did have more integrated landscape approaches to, to food and to forestry and to recreation and access, then we would have a higher higher level of tree cover. So yeah, I, I've got friends who, who farm, live just outside in, in Germany near Karlsruhe, and there there's a small landholding, but they have areas of intensive food production near the town, and then they have access into the wider forest further out. I think it is about that blending of different land uses. And I think it's interesting, USA is another interesting example where they talk about family forest owners. I lived, <laughs> I hope in my lifetime we can talk about family forest owners in, in the UK, and they talk about what they call plantation forestry, often they call it tree farms. I've got a tree farm. And I just think that's kind of much more honest about this is a tree farm. I am farming trees for a, for a for a purpose, and I quite like that. And I think that one of the challenges then is patterns of land ownership in the UK. You know, and I think in the UK at the moment we have a fairly narrow range of people. Well, historically we've had a narrow range of people growing timber. So we've got the kind of the state and the Forest Commission NRW Scottish Forestry. And then we have some large investment funds and a number of large estates, and they tend to have a, a fairly narrow range of management objectives. And I think if we had more farmers, more landowners owning forests and growing timber, then we'd find new ways to do that integration. So agroforestry is great, silvopastoral, but as Martin says, you get the more people we have doing this, then you know, we're saying, well, you could try this, and people go, oh, I'm trying this, and I'm trying that. And I think we'd have new ways of integration and at, and at different scales. And I think that's it's looking at our low woodland cover is is a symptom of other things. It is a problem, but it's a symptom of other problems. So we, if we want to change that, then we need to think carefully about how we change that and what are what are the drivers to make those changes. It strikes me that there's a potential sort of infrastructure challenge there as well. And in the same way that we find, you know, as as more people, uh, more farmers are taking on agroecology and regenerative farming practices and integrating livestock within perhaps what was previously an arable rotation, there's a, a need for a rethink of the whole way that we approach slaughter, for example, so that there are more small slaughterhouses dotted around the country. And I wonder if there's a sort of similar challenge when it comes to processing uh, timber products that at the moment, if you've got a big plantation, then you can have a processing unit next to that. And that's quite straightforward. Do we need to sort of review the way that uh, woodland infrastructure works as well? Yes, that's the easy, the easy answer. We've got some very big, very efficient, really, really efficient sawmills and timber processes in the UK. And they're very good at turning a crooked, irregular cone into square products, which is what is what sawmilling, a, a simplification of sawmilling, but that's that's what it is. And you know, huge, particularly in Scotland, a huge amount of investment in in getting most out of our timber crop and getting the most of that timber into into higher value timber products. But absolutely, we don't want to be hauling you know round timber huge distances. And you know, it's a lot of the weight is you know wet timbers. You know, what we want is the volume of the timber, not the weight of the timber, and we're hauling a lot of timber around. And I think again, that goes back to this um, land ownership and objectives of woodland owning, we could be processing more timber on the farm, on farms in uh, in local estates. We always used to, you know, most most estates used to have their own sawmill and, and they used to process timber on the estate for their own use. And that's slightly gone out of fashion, but there's 
there's lots of good examples already of people having things like wood miser sawmills and smaller saw benches set up to process timber locally, add value to it and, and for it to be used locally. The, the big processes are great and I've got lots of friends who work at the big processes and that investment is hugely needed and that, that drives investment elsewhere. But yeah, I think that, that looking at that timber infrastructure and that's more smaller sawmills, but then also how do we get more timber onto, onto the rails? You know, how do we have fewer timber trucks on the road, often on narrow rural roads? Can we get shift more of that timber on, onto rail infrastructure and process more of it locally? So again, it's this, this idea of shortening supply chains and sticky money again that you process you, pro- you add value to the food or you add value to the timber locally. So in many ways, the challenges that face forestry are, are actually the same challenges that face agriculture. And so it really makes sense to integrate uh, the conversations that we're having around these. And I love, <laughs> I love those phrases that you used earlier about timber appropriate land and, uh, and, and family forest owners. Those are, those are fabulous and, and they ring very true with, uh, with thinking about farming. Andy, we've previously discussed, and I think you know we're, we're coming naturally to this question, aren't we, about the need for a proper land use strategy in Britain. First of all, do you think that's important? I I think you do from conversations we've had, but who would you see as being the major stakeholders in a strategic process? And what would you hope that a land use strategy would actually change on the ground? I talk a lot about land use strategy and then I have a slightly nightmarish vision of a lot of meetings and workshops and then a a, a thick strategic document being produced, having everyone spent a lot of energy and it just sits on a shelf and then has has kind of limited impact. So maybe again, it's kind of symptoms and what's the problem? What's the symptom of the problem? And maybe the challenge isn't just a strategy, but kind of strategic strategic thinking. I would like to see if we're talking about a land use strategy, then some of those major stakeholders might be the construction sector. It might be um, people who are researchers working on bioplastics and bioeconomy. It's certainly got to include local communities and people who are living and work, working in these wider landscapes. So I think the idea of a land use strategy, it's you know, kind of why do we need a land use strategy? How do we make the best decisions about land use? How do we make the best decisions about land use change, about the there's a fundamental change going on in, in UK agriculture at the moment with the, the change away from the basic payment systems in, in its various forms in the various, in the various parts of the UK. But also that when we're thinking about having a you know, post-Brexit and about how where do we get our food from? How do we, as Martin was saying, what crops do we want to use for what purposes? And then, you know, if we're going to be growing a lot of timber, a lot more trees, where do we do that? How do we do that? Who should do that? I think without some form of strategy or some basic form of decision-making framework... Or at least then- a vision... <laughs> No, yeah, and I was talking about a vision later on, but yeah, no, just a vision of you know what we want our rural areas to look like. Do we want them to be world heritage sites and pick a point in time of some kind of perfect vision of kind of Edwardian countryside, or do we want something different? And I think that's that's the challenge. And I think so. I'm always nervous about kind of expanding protected areas sometimes because the protection areas often is is looking at kind of a vision of the landscape, and we kind of ah that that's what we want that landscape that point in time. And landscapes aren't like that. Landscapes are dynamic and landscapes are driven by people and natural events. So yeah, so a strategy, but as I say, strategic thinking. And then I think, again, if you look within, I'll pick on DEFRA. If you look at you know the people at a senior level in DEFRA, you know, have we got the right people at that senior level? Should we have more construction people sitting on the board of DEFRA? There's lots of eminent science scientists on the Science Advisory Council, but there's no forest scientists, there's no construction scientists. Again, it's the strategy versus strategic thinking. And I think I think a vision is the key thing. You know, what's what's our vision for our rural areas? Do we want them to be full of Airbnbs and second homes? Do we want 
dynamic, thriving communities. The whole housing challenge in rural areas is is a huge problem. All these things are interconnected. And I think it's that challenge of seeing, of having this, oh, hang on, this, this forestry is a problem here. And Airbnbs are a problem there. Access to health services is a problem there. And all these things are interconnected. And I think there's just a real, and it is a huge challenge for governments and government departments not to have a to have that vision to have that strategic thinking i want a land use strategy but i don't want a thick you know document that sits on a shelf and doesn't do anything martin what do you think about uh, you know a land use vision or, or strategy do you think that's something that's needed or or is the natural push and pull between private sector requirements and government policy already delivering you know reasonable land use outcomes already i think we need something if we leave it to the marketplace and and the leaders the government will pull in policy and bits we may not get the best outcomes in the right places and some market might lead lead in the wrong direction when we look back in what we do. I, I, you know, I've always thought we needed a strategy, but I'm all coming to the conclusion the government, national government, don't want to do a top-down. But we do need a land-use framework. We know climate's going to change some of our most productive soils and the fennel may be underwater in 50 years' time. Some other areas may see increased droughts. We need to understand the bigger plan of what's going to happen to our countryside and our landscape with the climate changes coming. So we need that framework of what are the challenges as from a national framework and from national governments. What are the frame, you know, opportunities, the challenges? Where do we need to put infrastructure? Where do we need to put food production, timber and other things? And then I think it really needs to go down to a local framework and strategy because it's local people and local communities and councils and, and land managers that can actually tailor the outputs of what's needed. We know where the right trees may go with some advice. We know which bits of land are the most productive or may flood, or we may need to put some housing there or infrastructure. But I do think we need that framework from, from the national governments and from DEFRAs and, and you know, structurally joined up right across the UK. Even though we've got devolved governments, we need that joined up because just because there's a line in the map, it doesn't mean it stops one side or the other. And then we need the local and regional bits to take ownership of some of this and set set out some clear strategy of what do we need, what is the best use, because then that follows on where do we put the timber manufacturing plants, where do we put the new abattoirs and the other infrastructure things we will need from that strategy. And Martin, you talk to government quite a bit. Do, do you get a sense that there is an appetite for this? Is it is it already happening in any form? Uh, there's no appetite whatsoever. They are not keen at all in doing a land use strategy and top-down approach. In England, it will go down to the local councils to do a local, you know, local nature recovery plans and local structures. It really concerns me. We don't have a vision across the top and a framework of actually the bigger challenges we have for a smallish island with lots of people and lots of demand on the landscape. Okay, so what are the priorities? What is the vision of? We know government want thirty odd thousand hectares per year of trees planted. So, okay, we could could deliver that. Where do we put them? We don't want just monocrop blocks. They need to be across the landscape, but then we need to put the infrastructure in. We need the timber process in places and the other opportunities and structure putting in. Currently, we don't see that, and I don't hear that coming from the government. And and that, for me, that's really concerning as a land manager. Will I be doing the right things in the future that society wants, or will I just take a marketplace approach and someone who offers me the most money and do something, when particularly in trees and other things, because that's a 30, 40, 50 year window. If I grow a crop as an arable farmer, next year I can do a different crop. I have only changed the land use 
for a 12-month period. But some of this bigger infrastructure stuff that's going to need to happen and, and will happen because of climate change, we need that structure and plan in place. And we, I certainly push it as often as I can. I was talking to uh, parts of DEFRA this morning and I'm certainly pushing that point that actually we need that vision and the plan to know what how we stitch it all together in the future. Fantastic. That's, that's really interesting. Now, Andy, just finally, I want to sort of take a long view. We've been talking throughout this about the importance of woodlands and forests. Clearly, they play a critical role for business, for mitigating and adapting to climate change and for nature restoration. And gradually, trees are being reintegrated into farm systems. So thinking forward 20 years, if you were travelling around Britain a generation from now, how different do you think that countryside, that landscape, would look? The easy answer to that is I'd like to see more trees and woodlands and more woodlands in better management, whether that's for biodiversity or for recreation or for, or for timber or ideally a combination of all three. A few years ago, I was involved in, a, there's a researcher called Vanessa Burton who did some work on attitudes around forest expansion in Scotland. And she produced some really great kind of stylized landscape images of a landscape would look like within more trees and managed for different purposes. And if you Google Vanessa Burton and Green Gold, you should find her blog and these, these images. But I think that's going back to what Martin was saying before is always that challenge of sort of, you know, we we want more trees or we want more timber or we want more woodland, but kind of not here, kind of somewhere else. I think we do need that vision in that landscape. So, yeah, more trees and more woodlands managed, you know, not just plonk, not just done for the grant, done for a purpose. And that purpose might be biodiversity. It might be growing timber. It might be to have more more access on the edge of towns where there's a huge demand for, you know, for countryside access. But let's plant some more trees there and let's 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 have multi-purpose woodlands on the edge of towns and more that connection between communities and people and woodlands so whether that's whether that's more woodland owned and managed by local councils or more woodlands and woodlands and trees on farms and managed and owned by local communities that shorter supply chain what we're talking about that kind of infrastructure of, of sawmilling and, um, and and construction i think it'd be great to see more timber construction in rural areas intact there's a, i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of clt being built in central london there's almost more clt in central london than there is there than in the rural areas you know when we could be building out this huge demand for rural housing we could be building that out of locally sourced, locally grown material and keeping that money, keeping that investment in local communities. And I think if we had more timber construction and then that would be a radical game changer in people's attitudes towards growing timber. If people can see uh, that forest there is going to build these homes here, it's not just going on a timber truck and disappearing. Some of it is staying locally. Some of it will always go to a big sawmill in the same way as some agriculture will be large scale. I think that would be a, a real game changer is people seeing that connection between woodlands on their doorstep and uh, the products and materials that they use. That's fantastic. Thanks so much, both. That's all we've got time for. I'd like to thank my guests, Martin Lines from the Nature Friendly Farming Network and Andrew Heald, who specialises in sustainable forests and plantations. If you've enjoyed listening, please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us and share our links. Farmgate is a partnership project for Farmwell and FAI Farms. We're funded by Sankalpa and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast. I've been Finlow Castain. Bye for now.